Hello and welcome to the Hammer and Tulip podcast with me, Graham Phillips and Gareth Dix. Welcome, Gareth. Hey, how you doing? Good evening. I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Good to chat. Um, yeah, so tonight we have the unenviable job of talking about perhaps the most divisive of the doctrines of grace. Uh, we've talked through the T of Tulip. We have talked through the U of Tulip in Unconditional Election. Tonight we land on the L. And the L is yeah. the point at which most people get off the bus. <laughs> it's it the, is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So, so, uh, yeah, we, controversial. <laughs> we we hope in tonight to to try and do justice to this uh, this doctrine. Uh, explain it in a way that hopefully won't get uh, too many hackles up. Um, we we are so thankful to have some I'm sure Armenian brothers listening in and so and sisters too. So our hope is to try and explain this doctrine in a in a clear way and not to upset people more than is proper. So <laughs> we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. This is uh this is a, a real joy to explain these these things and so we're going to talk about that tonight uh, in our series on the doctrine of grace on the doctrines of grace rather um so to begin with gareth why don't we just start with talking about this this name limited atonement which is the l in tulip um yeah i'll be honest before we begin talking about it, it it's uh it's it's the part of like I say it's part of the doctrines of grace that I struggled with the most and yeah um, a lot of people do yeah, yeah th- four I think point so. Calvinists three point Calvinists and that one's usually the one that hits the bin usually for a lot of people isn't it it is yeah and so obviously you know, I'm, I'm not I wasn't raised uh, in a Presbyterian church or a Reformed Baptist church I was I was raised uh, in a kind of classic evangelical church raised Arminian um, though more and more I look back on my pre-exist you know my sort of beliefs uh, from even like 10 years ago and um and 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 i think wow they they probably veered more towards semi-pelagian <laughs> rather than uh, arminian even you know so uh but yeah you know this this is the one that probably i, I took the, the most time with but i actually um personally don't i don't prefer the the name uh, limited atonement um i no. prefer to call it probably what rc sproul has called it before which is particular redemption and um, yeah i think there's john murray calls it definite atonement i think and or, uh, yeah, definitive atonement i think it is yeah yeah there's definite atonement john murray calls it but definitive would be another one yeah um so i prefer particular redemption um and my reason for that is basically i think <laughs> You got enough of a job trying to explain what this doctrine means without people tripping up over the name of it. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know we'll get into it in a, in a short while. It's so it fits into tulip though, isn't it? Let's just be totally honest about that. It is. Yeah, you know it's the canons of door. That's what it is. Dortrecht. Yeah, it's it's Dutch. Tulips are kind of Dutch, so we tried to make it work. Um, I guess they tried to make it work to spell out tulip, but you know, limited atonement for me, I I, I prefer not to call it that um, because I think it's sort of immediately sounds like restrictive when actually the new covenant is an explosion in terms of its openness compared to the old covenant and so to then call it limited atonement it makes it sort of sound the opposite but that's really not what the doctrine's teaching um so yeah so that anyway minor minor point there just just to make uh 
make myself but we'll still call it limited atonement just for the to to avoid confusion just for the uh, purposes of this but actually you might want to call it particular redemption or or a definitive uh atonement i i I think that was that's absolutely fine and probably better in some ways but we just just for the purposes of this we, we are referring to limited atonement really just to avoid confusion yeah and particularly how it lands within the doctors of grace really essentially that's right and so we've worked through um the two points so far we've worked through um total depravity we, we've we've taught how that doesn't teach uh, that you are as bad as you possibly could be um it rather teaches that the entirety of your being everything that you are is infected by this thing called sin so that includes yeah. your will and so the idea of free will again a really divisive topic but we've talked through this um that even the will uh, though it is in a sense free uh, it is part of you isn't it it's part of you and therefore it too is infected by sin and the heart is captive to sin itself so we've talked through this and how sin really does infect and affect the whole being and yeah. um, and how crucial that is to your theology once you understand that once that doctrine's nailed down um, it really is just a simple kind of movement through the rest of the doctrines once you've understood that that the fall really did affect us in a in a drastic way uh, to the yeah. point where we don't want christ until we're regenerate by the holy spirit so um th- these are these are things that are really nailed down and th- these are things that were very important um to the church through its 2000 years or so of development to the point where things like pelagianism for example pelagius the the english monk whose theology became very popular in the, yeah. the 400s um he taught that you know everybody was just born with the ability to choose good or evil was able to choose god or choose their own way and there was no original sin there was no hindrance of the will and that was condemned as heresy you know but but in yeah. fact that is basically what most christians most church going christians today would probably side with pelagius um would probably yeah, I think they would. if asked on the spot whether people are just born with the inherent ability to choose good or evil with no sort of with no with no effects from sin with no hampering of the free will and they would say yes that's true and so you know that's heresy according to church history so um we've nailed that down we talked about um total depravity the last episode we talked about unconditional election which is just shining a light on the subject of election there's no getting around it it's taught in scripture it's yeah. a, it's everywhere in the new testament and in the old testament and people forget that they forget that god always chose to deal with individuals you know the nature of covenant itself requires a people or a person to hold that covenant with god and so right through scripture you know we've got adam we've got noah we've got abraham we've got moses we've got israel his chosen people his church in the old testament and now we have christ and the new covenant so and all those who are in him so god's a covenantal god and god is a choosing god he's an electing god and he has an elect people and that's what we talked about last time out so really it's it's just a natural progression now to talk about the plan of god's salvation yeah. what is god's plan of salvation does god have a plan to save his people that's matthew 121 um and if so how does that work so we're going to talk about that in today's episode but before we begin um 
I think a lot of people, Gareth, when they get to talking about these doctrines, the, the, the doctrines of grace, as we call them, they'll say, well, are you talking about Calvinism? And you'll say, yeah. Well, well, yeah, um, we are talking about Calvinism. But I think another common misconception we have is that, you know, somehow John Calvin thought this all up. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he kind of like sat down in his office 500 years ago and, and he penned the doctrines of grace. But that's actually not true, is it? No, not at all. Um, as we're going to see, actually, this is something which um, the, the Remonstrants, the Arminian, came to the Synod of Dort with their uh, protests against Reformed doctrine. And actually, these, uh, the, these, these points, these five points actually came back as actually counters to the five points of our Arminius or Arminianism, which we'll have a look at in a moment. Um, so this is actually really an, a countering of their five arguments and it was named after kind of Calvin, Tulip, whatever. It was named Calvinism, the five points of Calvin, you know, it kind of as a, a tribute to him and his and his wonderful theology and, and all that he'd done. Um, I think mean, I would say, just going back to what you said as well, uh, we've already looked at total depravity and unconditional election. And I always say to people, and actually friends of mine, I've, I've had conversations with theology, uh, friends I've been to theological college with, and they have uh, said, I don't, I just don't get limited atonement. And then I've said to, I've said to them, one particular friend, I said to him, think of it as like links in a chain. You know, you go, it, it, they all link together. So they're not sort of like independent. They all connect. So a total depravity means that there needs to be unconditional election. Some people have to be chosen, which means that if people are elect, that means that Christ is sent to the cross for those people. Yeah. Um, so so it goes on from there. So it's a helpful way of looking at it, that all of these actually link they connect. very logically and connect together. So really, this is not this is not something that was that Calvin thought up, but this is actually something which is completely and utterly biblical. And the more you think about it, I was only having a, a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday, just saying, and, and he was saying that, you know, all throughout his life, he has seen God stop him in his sin and bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's like literally like a toddler. God has literally got alongside me and dragged me away from my sin and brought me back to him. He's, and it's like, that has to be a sovereign God and that has to be election. That has to be, you know, all these things that we're talking about in this podcast. I mean, this isn't just head knowledge. This is actually a friend of mine who has seen the Lord walking alongside him throughout his life, pulling him away from, from harm and sin and bringing him back to himself. And that's really what this is all about. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's the question of how does God save? You know, how does God yeah. save his people? How does God act? And um, really, the whole thing is a discussion. Well, right, it's not a discussion. It's an argument for what we call monogism. Uh, monogism, which is is basically you, you've got monogism and you've got synergism. And those are the two ways of viewing salvation. Monogism or monos, meaning only or alone. And then uh, sin or synergy, which is together. And so monogism means that there is one party working for the salvation of mankind. And synergism means that there are two and that... God is working together with man. God is doing his part and man is doing his part in order to achieve salvation. That's synergism. And monogism says it's all of God. And that's the, the oft quoted yeah. reform fa uh, phrase uh, that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, therefore, it is not of man. And that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrines of grace. And like you said, yeah. Gareth, I think when people recount their testimonies, when they tell their testimonies, you know, all the verbs 
that they use in those testimonies relate to God. You know, he yeah, stopped completely. me from sinning. He entered into my life. We, when we tell our testimonies, it's always God-centered. But somehow in our theology, we want to creep ourselves in there. Um, yeah, <laughs> always. Yeah. So what this is, is a defense of monogism. It's a defense of God's work of salvation. And by showing that man is rendered dead in sin, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he cannot save himself. He can't even lift a finger to save himself. He's dead. And then Paul's argument naturally flows on to say, but God, and that there's no cause for yeah. boasting because it's all of God. And you mentioned Romans 8. Uh, we've already talked through this, I think, in the last episode, but I want to look at this more again today. And, and we'll see as we look at scriptures like Romans 8, um, we'll see how God acts sovereignly for the salvation of his people and that there is a plan of salvation that god acted in an orderly manner and that the three persons of the holy trinity rather than working against one another or there being any kind of confusion between the three of them they work in perfect harmony to achieve the salvation of god's church of the elect of all those who will believe Uh, however you want to denominate that group uh, there is a definite plan and all three members of the trinity are working in harmony in unison to achieve the same goal not different goals you don't have the father trying to save a certain people group and the son trying to save everyone and then the spirit doing his own thing Uh, you have all three working together uh, to bring about definitely the salvation of God's chosen people. Uh, So that's what we're looking to prove today. Um, And I think it's probably best to kind of go back a a little bit. Um, You mentioned the remonstrance. And again, it's a term you might not be too familiar with, um, you know, but we we're talking really there about the Arminian theologians. um, Yeah. Who were really kind of bringing their, Uh, views to the table uh, about reformed theology and they put together the five points of Arminianism which actually precedes the five points of Calvinism so as Gareth said the five points of Calvinism are just a response to the five points of Arminianism Um, and what arose from that was a document called the Canons of Dort and that's really a kind of a doctrinal statement on Calvinism, more or less. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to reference some of the canons of Dort um, and talk about what it has to say on on, on the the atonement, that is Christ's death. Um, And yeah, and start from that historical place. I think that might be helpful, maybe. Yeah. I mean, if you like, I could just jump in and just read out what the the remonstrance kind of argument was initially. Um, So, I mean, it's helpful. We're we're just going to start back from the sort of the the Arminian perspective. So the remonstrance, and they wrote these five points. And number three, which we're looking at now, for them, their argument is universal atonement. So uh, they say, in in as much as it was their further conviction that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any should perish. Arminius and his followers held that redemption, used casually as a synonym for atonement, was general. In other words, the death of Christ provided grounds for God to save all men. However, each must exercise his free will to accept Christ. I mean, there you have it right there. This is, this is having an act of the human will to accept Christ 
uh, and receive salvation. And you would hear this a lot in the kind of, I suppose, in the kind of Billy Graham crusades and the kind of, you know, evangelistic preaching. And, you know, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to say make a choice for Christ in one, one level, no. but at the end of the day, that person is only going to be able to put their trust in Christ if the Holy Spirit has regenerated their heart, heart first. Yeah. And this is the thing that can easily be lost. So, kind of following it if we start the argument from a, an arminian perspective an arminian argument would firstly state that the person has free will so as you already mentioned before a pelagian view would be that there's some spiritual good in them uh, that that would be to say that the fall of humanity as seen by adam and eve was not total yeah a person is still able to shake themselves out of their desire to sin and by their own willpower uh, and good that's in them already they can believe in christ's salvation that is exactly what we read under the uh, the universal atonement and then moving on to that the arminian argument would state that election was not so much about god choosing people for salvation as we we discussed in the last two podcast episodes but rather they would argue that it's the it is the foreknowledge of god as to who would believe so yeah. god is looking ahead and saying i'm going to look ahead in the future and see who's going to exercise their free will to believe in me and believe in christ so therefore fallen humanity's act of faith is the condition by which a person is elected to eternal life so it is conditional in that sense and salvation is dependent on a person exercising their free will and putting their faith in christ now obviously we're going to look into that but i mean one of the first problems i see with that graham is that a person by 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 definition has contributed towards their salvation by exercising faith have they not yeah i think you know like we've discussed i think uh what the position of the Arminians puts forward. The Arminian position, of course, is slightly different to the Pelagian position. Um, uh, and, and also the semi... The, the, these are like very small differences, I think. But um, the Arminian Nuanced, position yeah. would sort of say, you know, that yes, that depravity is total. The Arminian would say, yes, depravity is real, uh, that every part of the human person is infected by sin. Um, but that God gives a, a kind of a common grace or they call it provenient grace some Arminians will call it that um, that actually empowers or gives the ability to all uh, to make a choice for Jesus yeah um, and so that's how the argument kind of goes um, whereas the semi-Pelagian or Pelagian well the Pelagian would say listen there's no there's actually no effects of original sin it just affected adam you and i are born yeah. with the ability to choose good or choose evil the pelagian would probably admit some um some kind of effects of original sin but still an ability to choose the crucial decision which is to choose to say to have faith in in god um both pelagianism and semi-pelagianism have been condemned as heretical arminianism yeah. um, is what we're dealing with with here today but yeah for me i think um yeah the problem would be for me that provenient grace is is something that you know we're having to really strive to see in scripture the idea that yeah, god true. is giving some kind of grace to all mankind not just the elect uh, but some extra grace somewhere um to enable all to believe giving everybody the ability to to come to him um it is something that yeah, I don't see I don't see that clearly 
portrayed in scripture uh, i see paul no. saying that uh, we are dead in trespasses and sins um that's before we come to christ but god you know uh by grace you're saved and that through faith uh, and, and that is the gift of god that none should boast you know so uh yeah so that yeah i think what we have to say is that we when we proclaim the gospel we ought to pro- proclaim it to all um matthew yep. 28 go into all the world and and preach the gospel and so we doing that because we're told to um and we are to say there is a command in the gospel to repent and to believe um and there's nothing wrong with doing that that doesn't actually present a challenge to the reformed view of atonement um because we don't know who the elect are <laughs> we don't no, exactly know. we exactly. don't we, we can't see with our natural eyes the working of the holy spirit whose heart is being exchanged from a heart stone to a heart flesh we can't see that so our job is to proclaim the gospel to sow the seed and the holy spirit will do the work um and those who are being transformed by the holy spirit will believe um and yeah. so we're not we're not doing anything wrong by calling people to believe in Christ. Um, we're not contradicting um, the idea of of there being an elect people. Um, rather, we're actually trusting what Scripture says that there is power um, in the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation, um, and it's supernatural. I think for me, the doctrines of grace make any salvation more of a miracle than i ever thought it was yeah. when i was an arminian um <laughs> it makes it more it is the more you understand it the oh. more it opens you up to understand the plan of salvation suddenly becomes all the more staggering because yeah. it's uh, there is something about you know I, he must increase i must decrease i think that is the same when you have a reformed uh, view i suddenly decrease I'm not the master of my own destiny. No. It is God who's sovereign over all things, including salvation. And when you realise that and you see, you know, just how hopeless things were for you, and this is again, Ephesians 2 is incredible on this, you know, without hope in the world, it says, you see the hopelessness of your condition apart from Christ, apart from his work, whereas on the Arminian view, well, it's not hopeless. Um, you just need to make the right choices. You just need to be educated in the right things, and then you'll make the right calls. And so, the difference on a certainly on a Pelagian view or a semi-Pelagian view, the difference between those who will be in heaven and those who will be in hell ultimately won't be the grace of God. No, it won't be the grace of God. It will be that the people in heaven made a better choice than the people in hell, that they were saved by that better choice, because God did as much for those who are in hell as he did for those who are in heaven and unfortunately that's the same problem the arminian has is that those who are in hell they got every bit as much work from god as those who are in heaven so what separates the two is the question yeah why and does, the whole question of yeah yeah who's and, and did christ shed his blood in vain is a classic question as well did you know was, was some of that blood that christ shed on the cross shed in vain uh, and and only you know what if, if if it was purely down to free will then it's god's just kind of taken taking a kind of a gamble or a risk is he not yeah and i think um that that's the those are the things that we have to to get to to deal with really are uh, was there an intention was there an, an intention in the cross did did god have an idea of what was happening um or was it just that christ was creating a potential way of salvation for all you know was it just that his work on the cross was a work of potential you know yes 
he's created a way of salvation but actually he hasn't saved anyone right he's made it a, no. a, a way for all but in the cross he didn't actually save anyone whereas the reform view would say no he definitely saved people at the cross and those people were the elect and um, th that's the difference between the two there's a, there's a that's why it's often called definite atonement or definitive atonement or whichever yeah. one you call is that it's not just a potentiality um, god actually knew uh, who he was going to save at the cross um yeah, i think it's second timothy 2 19 says that the lord knows them that are his you know um and again we've got john 6 the big passage there about christ talking about those the father has given me will come to me yeah um and those all those who come to me i shall not cast out john 17 the high priestly prayer again jesus is aware that a people has been given to him out of the world um not the whole world has been given to christ in fact in john 17 9 um he, he says so we'll, we'll go back to john 17 8 for i've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know in truth that i came from you and they have believed that you sent me i am praying for them i am not praying for the world <laughs> what jesus you're, yeah. you're supposed to pray for the world uh yeah well, i'm not praying for the world but for those whom you've given me for they are yours and so again we've we've got this jesus saying kind of things we don't expect him to say um but it, it is a theme that we do see right through scripture god didn't yeah. choose every nation god chose one <laughs> god, god chose one nation he chose israel and he's chosen an elect people out of the world and he's given them to christ and christ has gone to the cross and procured the actual salvation including the yeah. faith to see that that people is saved that, that he won't lose one now if he simply goes to the cross and what he's doing in the atonement is providing a potential way of salvation for all how can he possibly say that he won't lose one if he's yeah. trying to save the whole world if he's trying to save the whole world uh, then either you have to believe in universalism that he does actually effectively save all and actually that's a more consistent view in some ways than arminianism because then you can agree with what christ says you can say okay well he says in john 6 he won't lose any and then we do believe that the atonement is universal and so all are saved yeah okay well i've got some questions then about what we see in revelation um <laughs> yeah, uh, so I've got yeah some about the lake of about fire that, about the lake yeah. of fire um you know but on the other hand you, what are we then saying is we're saying somewhere along the line uh jesus got it wrong because he can't promise that he's going to not lose one um because if his plan or god's plan was to save all every single human that ever lived and then christ goes to the cross and pays for every single human that ever lived and he's saying i will not lose one of all those you've given me well what can he possibly mean um because he is going to lose some on that view yeah uh so the, these are the things we, we we have to we have to deal with and i, and I think we've 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 sort of shown in the last episode that that scripture does teach that there is a people um that are being given to christ out of 
the world um we know that early on in matthew's gospel it says you know he should come to save his people um there's always this sense of a remnant of a people we don't know how many they will be and it's i think unwise to speculate <laughs> on that yeah but we do know that the gospel's been opened wide to the world so we, we we've no reason to think this is just one or two people um the gospel is an incredibly broad proclamation to the whole world and yes i think this is another thing we'll get to as well that yeah christ is the saviour in the world in a really true way he's the only way of salvation to all the world and he did yeah. come for all you know he is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world because there's no other option for anyone in the world <laughs> you know and uh, I, I like i don't know if you've ever read any aw pink um on this but he he's, oh, he's brilliant yeah he's very good on god. this on the yeah. sovereignty of god um that yes you know christ died for all we can say that because the Bible says that Christ died for all in a sense. But A.W. Pink made a really good point. We always have to ask what scripture is meaning when it when it uses the word all or the word world, because it can mean a number of different things dependent on the context, as we've seen before. But A.W. Pink would say, yes, he came and died for the sins of the world, um, for yeah. all the world, but all without distinction not all without exception and i think so often we read that in that he's the savior of the world we he's saved he's he died to save or he's the savior all those kinds of things we'll say and that's in a sense it's true yeah you know he he, he came and he's going to save jews gentiles men women kings this is the point we see in uh first timothy 2 that we'll get to soon but Christ is the saviour of all kinds of men and that his bride yeah. will be made up of people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And so in a sense, we could say, yeah, he died for all without distinction, but we surely can't say for all without exception um, because we've got over and over again uh, in scripture, we've got in Matthew 1, 21, that he, he came to die for his people. John 10, 11, that he came, laid down his life for the sheep. You know, we have all these pictures of a particular atonement that he came to die for a particular people. And I will just mention as well, um, you know, quoting from the church fathers is never... It, I don't think it should ever be used as like a kind of mic drop proof because you can more or less, you can find a whole bunch of stuff in the fathers, can't you? Um, yeah, it's plenty of stuff. It's not good stuff mostly, but it's, it's great stuff, stuff, but it's a mixture <laughs> yeah. and it's not scripture. And so we, we weigh the words of the fathers against scripture. Um, but I think it's just, it's interesting. I'm going to quote a little bit from some of the church fathers just to point out that this doctrine of limited um, of limited atonement or particular redemption, it's not invented by Calvin, you know. And I do hear that a lot. I hear, I hear that from some wonderfully bright Arminian brothers who I so respect. But I'll hear things like this, like, "Oh, you know, that doctrine of limited atonement." You know, I do wish that Calvin and the Puritans hadn't arrived and just wrecked everything with that silly reform doctrine. And you think, well, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to quote from Jerome. So this is around 390 AD. Christ is sacrificed for the salvation of believers. Not all are redeemed, for not all shall be saved, but the remnant. 
All those who were redeemed and delivered by thy blood returned to Zion, which thou hast prepared for thyself by thine own blood. Christ came to redeem, redeem Zion with his blood. But lest we should think that all are Zion, or everyone is Zion, is truly redeemed of the Lord, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, form the church. He did not give his life for every man, but for many, that is, for those who would believe. We've got Tertullian, AD 200. Christ died for the salvation of his people, for the church. We've got Irenaeus, 180 AD. He came to save all, all I say, who through him are born again unto God. Infants and little ones and children and young men and old men. Jesus is the saviour of them that believe, but the Lord of them who believe not. Wherefore, Christ is introduced in the gospel weary, promising to give his life a ransom in the room of many. We've got Justin Martyr, AD 150. Who endured the sufferings for those men whose souls are actually purified from all iniquity? As Jacob served Laban for the cattle that were spotted and of carious forms, so Christ served even to the cross for men of every kind, of many and various shapes, procuring them by his blood and the mystery of the cross. And I think this is it. We're, we're really, we're, there's lots more I could read from there. Um, but we can see yeah. there a, a definite Brilliant atonement stuff, in the church fathers, at least in some of them. I'm not saying you won't be able to find others that say different, but the point is this doctrine of Christ, Christ's atoning work on the cross being to save a definite people, and that definite people being the elect, being the church, is found even in the early church. And we, we will state that we find it also in the writings of the apostles. But this is the idea, isn't it, Gareth, that at the cross what we have is an atoning it's an atoning sacrifice taking place the work of the cross actually achieves salvation for a people group it's not just for no one it's not just a kind of work that creates creates a potential way of salvation but actually purchases procures the salvation of god's elect people who the father's given to the son um, and so we're talking about justification really aren't we and that that being a definite thing for a definite yeah. people not just randomly thrown out there but actually procuring the salvation of those people absolutely right and and to go back to what you're saying there's something that i think that's important to go back to and pick up on is that whole theme of of the world and to, and, and the mention of the world in scripture i know anybody who is perhaps arminian listening to this would probably likely be thinking of john 3 16 thinking well come on let's uh let's see you uh, guys take that one on and you know so john 3 16 says for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and that is very often the main proof text for the Arminian and you can kind of understand why because he talks about the world and he talks about whoever believes in him so it does kind of look like a universal Christ God loving the world and Christ dying for everyone and whoever believes who has the free will will have eternal life so you can kind of see how they end up getting to that point but this is where whilst it's very easy to see how this verse um, at, at face value could could lead to you thinking that 
it, it, there's, it's when you dig deeper into a biblical text that you understand what it really means. And I think just for a moment, I just want to do a little bit of heavy lifting with John 3.16, because I think it is important, and I can understand why a lot of people would come to that view. And, uh, for example, I would, I'd want to use another biblical text to kind of ex- make, make the point, and that is... So let's just say we look at 1 Corinthians 15.22, and that famously says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. So all die in Adam, and in Christ all shall be made alive. And and often people think, you know, that is the kind of proof text for universalism often. You know, you'll hear people saying, well, if all die in Adam and all be made alive in Christ, as if, as if that's kind of everybody gets saved. Well... I mean, the Bible says that is not the case. Clearly, we see that, that there are a lot of people who perish. A lot of people end up in the lake of fire. Jesus says that broad is the road that leads to destruction, and and, to, and very uh, and many people end up on that road. Narrow is the road, and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and very few people find it, and very few people enter in through it. So the Bible's very clear that a lot of people aren't saved. So clearly, 1 Corinthians 15.22 is not talking about everybody who ever lived um regardless of whether they profess a faith in christ or not this is actually talking specifically about those who believe and trust in the lord jesus christ so following that kind of line of reasoning when we go back to john 3 16 uh, and we look at that as an argument for universal atonement the arminian is naturally thinking that the word world would refer to all of humanity because they hold to this belief in in kind of post-destination where God foresees humanity's work of faith in Christ by their own volition. So God is sort of, as we said before, looking ahead. So the Arminian understanding is based on the belief that since humanity has free will, God in his foreknowledge knows what's, who's going to believe in him and, and that's where we get to universal atonement. But the Calvinist would logically assume that by the term world, the gospel writers actually, as you've already said already, but but the gospel writers referring to men of every tribe and nation, not all tribes and nations. And this is something we see quite a lot in in Scripture, where where Jesus goes uh, uh, to the disciples and and tells them to go and baptise, you know, and make disciples of all nations. He's talking about disciples in the nations, not discipling entire nations. Whereas the kind of Bethel idea is, right, we need to disciple Great Britain. Well, actually, that's impossible because there's, you know, there's an elect within this uh, small elect that's what he's talking about so in the same way as 1 corinthians 15 22 we see that it's not that every single person will be made alive in christ it's actually talking about believers so this is again coming out of a deep conviction that the scriptures teach that election is based on god's will and purpose so the apostle Paul says so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory so god has a plan and a purpose that's not affected by any contribution that humanity can make since we're all completely helpless and dead in sin and we're unable to put our trust in christ our will is completely bound to sin satan and death so to think otherwise is to underestimate the power and grip of sin so this idea that that christ dies for the whole world for everyone just doesn't add up biblically and the arminian view is that it is a person's individual act of faith and and it's them being saved so that doesn't add up and let's just go back to john three sixteen a minute and ask a question who did christ die for 
And this is where we have to ask the question, who is it that will not perish but have eternal life? Who is it that will believe according to the scriptures? And who then is included in the word world? And as we just look at this a bit more, that to answer the first question, we, we could answer it by saying, whoever believes in him, and the Arminian would answer the second question by saying, well, who is it that will believe according to the scriptures? And then he'll say, whoever of his own will chooses to believe in Christ, whilst the Calvinist will answer, those whom the Father chose in Christ of his own free will. I just want to sort of just wrap up with this. Notice something really significant here. Both the Arminian and the Calvinist would agree that the word world means those whom Christ died to save. So that is men from every tribe and nation. But not all tribes and nations, since not everyone will trust in Christ. We all know that. So this means that the Arminian would have to agree that the blood of Christ shed on the cross isn't limited in its power and sufficiency. The blood of Christ cleanses the sinner from all sin and unrighteousness and presents them holy and blameless before God. But the blood of Christ is limited and effectual only for those who are the elect. And regardless of whether you hold to a theology of conditional or unconditional election, that the blood of Christ is limited and effectual only to those who are elect. So essentially this this kind of argument it renders universal atonement to be untenable as a theological position because it's inferring that the blood of christ shed on the cross was wasted on people who wouldn't believe it's kind of like god's plan of salvation is foiled and and it's all down to us and i kind of think that's really where just picking up on where, where you were talking earlier on about the john chapter six that actually all that the father has given to the son uh, he will he will not turn them away yeah, and he, he, you know, he he won't lose one. Uh, they'll raise him won't up on lose the last one day. Of them. I think, yeah, I mean, you know, even if you take in John three sixteen, if, even if you take the ton cosmon to mean the whole world or or everyone, I think it's still not a verse that's teaching what most people think it's teaching. And, yeah. you know, so the classic line would be, well, whosoever you know whosoever believes you know and that's the kind of like supposed to be an argument against i guess like election maybe um you know yeah. whosoever it doesn't just say the elect says whosoever and i would say you know even if you take ton cosmon there the world to mean everyone i think the verse really isn't it's not telling you what you think it's telling you about the man's ability it's not talking about man's ability to do x y or z uh, and it's not even talking about this kind of nebulous amazing love that god has it's talking about the method by which god loves people and that's i think that's the thing that people get lost in that that's my perspective i think you know the 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 the, the word for so would be the the really you know the important factor here so like in the in the greek literally it's like hutos gar agapesen hotheos ton cosmon, which means thus. Hutos doesn't, that's the Greek word that we translate so. And there's two meanings in English of so, aren't there? There's like, yeah, you could say, oh, the match was so good, meaning like it was great. It was really good. Yeah. So it's like a kind of like, um, I can't think of an adjective now, but like it's a way of kind of magnifying something, right? Yeah. Or so can also mean thus can't it like this yeah. is the way you know and so i did x y or z okay so it can have kind of two meanings and here hutos which we translate so means thus 
That's what yeah. it literally means. It doesn't mean that that God's love was so great. It actually is saying God has loved the world thus. So it's in this way, in actually, this way, yeah. Right? It's telling you the manner in which He's loved the world, and so what's the manner in which God has loved the world? That's what. That's the question that John is wanting yeah. us to ask, or Jesus, depending on who you think said this. There's differences of opinion, but that's the question we're supposed to be asking. Okay, well, how has God loved the world? And He says, "Well, I'll tell you." Okay, in that He sent His only Son or he gave his only son is the best translation there he gave his only son in order and and this is the bit where people get caught up they'll say in order that whosoever believes in him right well actually it doesn't say that in the greek okay it says hina pas ho pistuon okay which means in order so hina is like a kind of in order that pas means all and then ho pistuon is a participle but it's it's what we would call like a kind of it's substantive in a way it's like a noun it operates like a noun so it, you would translate it if you're being literal as saying in order that all those believing or all the believing ones in order that all the believing ones in him might not perish but have eternal life so we yeah. don't we don't see any whosoever's in there although i'm not saying it's utterly wrong to translate it like that but that's not what's in the text in the text we've got in order that all the believing ones in him might not perish but have eternal life well there's no issue there for anybody that believes in unconditional election (laughs) and there's no issue there for anybody that believes in limited atonement either because that's exactly what the bible teaches that all those who believe in christ won't perish but have eternal life and so uh, yeah yeah far from teaching any kind of like ability of every man to exercise faith natural to himself and not the gift of god it's just not in there we're reading we're no. reading that in and i think you know there, there are other texts that we could go to as well where they're supposed to kind of be knocked down knocked down arguments against limited atonement um you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the verses that speak for Christ, you know, dying for his people, Matt one twenty one. you know, his sheep, he came to lay down his life for the sheep, um, for his friends, of course, later on in John. So we see this again and again, that there's a, there's a people that Christ came for. And again, I, I will just quote from uh, Romans just because we were there last time. Uh, but in Romans 8, 29 it says for those whom he foreknew and we've talked about this that foreknowledge doesn't mean foreknowledge of future events okay foreknew is talking about love it's talking about electing love you know it says uh, you know of all the nations i knew you talking about israel he's not talking about that he kind of had a foreknowledge of israel he's talking about his love for israel in the old testament and it's the same here this foreknowledge is of an electing knowledge those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if we read it backwards, right, all those who were gl- glorified, who those who are in heaven, will have been those who were justified. How were they justified? Yeah. How were they justified? What's the work of justification on their behalf? Well, 1 John 2, 2 says that he's the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins alone, the sins of the whole world. Okay. Well, there you have it. Okay. He is the 
sacrifice of sin for the whole world. I've got no problem saying that, okay? Yeah. There is only one way to have your sins expiated in this world, and that's Christ. And that offer is made to the whole world. No problem, okay? So all those who are glorified in heaven are those who've been justified. How are they justified? By the cross. And all those who were justified in the cross are those who were called okay <laughs> they were called who were those who were called those who were predestined are the ones who were called yeah it goes all the way back and no, who were those who were predestined they're those who were foreknown who were loved who were yeah. elected and we see that again in ephesians 1 so we have this what we call the golden chain of redemption going on there and we see no drop off it doesn't say some who were predestined will be called it doesn't say some who were called will be justified it's all 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 and all the verbs relate to god don't they not man yeah there's so one right yeah one working for the salvation of mankind here which lines up again with paul's uh second chapter in ephesians um you see the absolute futility of man trying to save himself we're dead in sins and so yeah so you know th there we have it really i think we have to be able to deal with scripture and i think believe that scripture uh interprets scripture and so therefore there shouldn't <laughs> there shouldn't be any sort of necessity whether you're an arminian or a calvinist to try and play texts off against one another you know ideally no. we but we both agree arminians and calvinists we both agree that that many of us believe that scripture is the word of god and that it's consistent within itself so what we're looking for is is to see the harmony in these texts uh rather than trying to prove text one another uh, <laughs> you know we want to be careful yeah. with that we uh, we want to be gentle but at the same time you know recognizing that hey uh, we've got to be able to say what scripture says we've got to be able to give glory when it says these things that there is predestination there is election that christ did come uh, to lay down his life for the sheep you know that these these are great things um <laughs> So anyway, I'll stop rattling on now, but um, just wanted to add well, I think that. It's I think it's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I was just going back to what you said about uh, John chapter 6. Again, I just think that's something that I want to put a more of a positive spin on this, really, like to explain why this is a wonderful thing. And, and when it says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he's given me but raise them up at the last day and let's just look at John chapter 6 more from just kind of like almost a, uh, a human level so let's just say we're on the ground and, uh, and we're going to see people who come to Jesus and they're the people who believe in him but if you look from a bird's eye view, you know, kind of you got on a drone and you kind of went up and you looked from a heavenly level and, and, you, and you, you see the bigger picture, you will see out of all the people in the world, it's those people who believe in Jesus are the ones that the Father has given to him. And obviously we're going to come and talk next week and talk about irresistible grace. So we're not going to give too much away for next week, but, but uh, next time we, we record a podcast, but that there is that drawing of people to, and right at the end of John chapter 6 the amazing thing we see is that many of Jesus' uh, followers they turned away and they no longer followed him 
and it, and and it wasn't that they were genuine believers who become disillusioned because they really weren't they had their own idea of who jesus was they wanted they had this idea of who they wanted him to be to be this leader who was going to build a new earthly kingdom and and overthrow the roman empire and when jesus talks about the kingdom of god they can't and they won't understand this is something you'll find with people when you explain the gospel to them they they'll mock it or they just won't understand it or they'll be offended by it they just won't take it in and this whole crowd of people turned away and walked away from christ and stopped <coughs> following him and he's left with just the 12 disciples at the end and he and he then you know outs judas as a turncoat at the end of uh, john chapter 6 um but jesus effectively whittles down his followers essentially down to 11 because one, one of them's going to uh, uh, apostatize and leave him and, and betray him and if you think there were literally thousands of people one minute and now jesus is down to 11 and think of this another way like imagine that there's a huge evangelistic crusade and let's just say there are about i don't know ten thousand people turned up the evangelist did a powerful talk and then everybody pretty much just left just just bailed and left like 11 people who who were going to be faithful and make a commitment to christ and you can imagine what an embarrassment and a disappointment that would be and yet that's what happens in john 6 god's ways are not our ways and out of all those people all the 12 of those disciples only only the 11 that were going to be left god was going to use them and they were going to become the apostles and peter was going to stand up on the day of pentecost and preach the gospel and three thousand people would come to faith and i think this is when we think about these things a lot of people struggle with the things we're talking about i think well doesn't that kind of get in the way of evangelism the answer is actually no it doesn't it helps right. evangelism I, I want to explain to you why this is such good news if you're an evangelist and, and we should be evangelists and those of us who are you know there, there's a real a lot of work to be done but what we're being called upon to do we are not being called upon to do the hard work of changing people's hearts and i'll say praise god for that because mm. god does that I, I i remember don carson talking about this and don carson he says in this in this lecture he says look the whole point is you know you can do your best with your evangelism and and, and preach and share the gospel and whatever but don't worry about getting the mechanics right you know otherwise if if, if this was all about you know our Arminianism and free will well then you know you and i after we've preached we, we might just be lying awake all night thinking oh i didn't preach quite clearly enough or i didn't make that point clear enough that person wouldn't have understood it well enough but no god does the heavy lifting god does the, the work in people's hearts and that's why it's such good news that 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 god predestines and chooses and elects and and, and has sent his son to die for the elect yeah uh, that's why jesus says i've not come from heaven to do my own will but to do the will of him who who sent me so i mean just to just to wrap this up but you know let's think on a practical level you, you know when it comes to mission and evangelism you know you know our orthodoxy affects our orthopraxy in that sense theology is not just for understanding the word of god it, it should move us into into action and really knowing that that god has 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 got a work for us to do means that we should step out and there's a, there's a there's a 
a danger within sort of Calvinists, and I know it's a, a criticism that's often made that a lot of hyper Calvinists tend to just never do an evangelism because you know, well, God knows who's elect are, and they'll get to heaven somehow because you know that's that's God's problem. But that's not the attitude we have at all. We are still called. We have a mandate to go out and preach the gospel. And I love this story of Charles Spurgeon. He was once preaching, preaching passionately, as you should. You should uh, be passionate in sharing your faith and be persuasive and, and, and speak to people, you know, like a dying man to dying men. And, and someone said to Charles Spurgeon, you know, you preach like an Arminian today. And Charles Spurgeon handed this guy a piece of chalk and said, well, go and mark a cross on the, one, on the ones who are elect, on the backs of the ones who are elect, and I'll preach to them then. But it's the fact that I just think in terms of on a practical level, this is such good news because as someone who has a, a real heart for the lost, as I know you do, and I'm sure many of you listening to this do as well, it, you know, the, 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 the pressure is taken off us to do the heavy lifting. God is the one yeah. who will change hearts, but we are called to pray and preach the gospel. And this is why I think this is such good news that takes actually takes all of the unnecessary pressure off us. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. I think uh, this, the news about the definite atonement that that Christ has actually procured salvation for all those who believe in him or you want to call them the elect, call them the elect, but you know, all the elect are going to believe, aren't they? So, I mean, for me, that's great news that that Christ's death actually procured my salvation, that it's in him, that I can look to him as the author and perfecter of my faith, not myself, you know, and and my uh, grasp on him um, is it pales in comparison to his grasp on me. You know, I was given yeah. to him before the foundation of the world. <coughs> um, I've got no reason to boast. These these are great reasons for confidence um, in proclaiming the gospel and are great reasons for assurance in our own personal walks. I would really encourage you. I mean, I'm going to dive back into a couple of things here, Gareth, that I've missed out. Yeah, that sure. I think are Absolutely. important. But um, I would encourage people, you know, to check out Martin Lloyd-Jones's series through the book of Romans, particularly amazing, on yeah. Romans 8, 29. Um, I think that he really does do a great job of explaining assurance um, through these doctrines of grace, through the yeah knowing that uh, our salvation is of God, uh, and therefore we can be confident in it, you know. And there's such a joy uh, in having a peace about your salvation and your place with God. Uh, but yeah, I, I did want to just mention a few things. Really, I think the work of Christ, of course, on the cross, being the Passover Lamb, being um, the Lamb of God. All of that picture language speaks of the Old Testament sacrifices, doesn't it? That's the picture we get. Yeah. Um, And so he was the the Passover lamb. And of course, in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb or the the sacrificial lambs that were offered twice daily um, to take away sins, um, they you know they kind of were a shadow a foreshadow of what what he was to be and these lambs these sacrifices um, they did atone for the sins of god's people so yeah. that they did the job that they were supposed to do their shedding blood um meant that sins were atoned for or expiated and pointed towards the future sacrifice of christ whose sins would not just create a potential way for forgiveness but actually expiate sin that's the picture that we have there um and then also we know that christ's office now is as a high priest we read the whole book of hebrews and we see christ as a a high priest what what did a priest do what did a high priest do well on the day of atonement they entered into 
the Holy of Holies and they would present the sacrifice when they sprinkle the blood on the altar um, and that would atone for the sins but the sins of whom the sins of an in particular people the sins of just yeah anyone or whoever no the sins of god's people and so that was the office of the high priest to sprinkle the blood to offer the sacrifice before god which was acceptable and if it was of course acceptable then wow. the sins of yeah. the people were forgiven so why would we see that christ role would be different uh, christ enters into the most holy of places and he offers what sacrifice his own blood and he offers it before the father and he who does he offer it on behalf of not some indefinite nebulous whoever but he's offering his sacrifice on behalf of his people on behalf of the universal yeah. church um the covenant people of god and so that's the role that we have in place you can't have a high priest without a people uh, <laughs> being atoned for yeah. it doesn't, doesn't work exactly um, right. so there has to be a people group in mind that people group is clearly the elect and equally you've got christ in his high priestly role also praying for and pleading for and interceding for those people and in john 17 of course he says i'm praying for those who you've given me i'm not praying for the world and again we can see yeah if christ is not praying for everyone and he's praying for those who the father has given him we can be pretty certain that there is an elect people chosen out of the world that's the remnant uh, those are the people that are saved in the work of the cross um, and they are those for whom christ is interceding and they are the people who he is providing atonement for going into uh, the presence of god and sprinkling his blood or sh you know presenting his sacrifice of appeasement on behalf of um a specific definite people not um, a nebulous kind of nondescript well you know there's the idea that well we just don't know you know we don't know whoever yeah. be whoever believe well actually no it's it's a definite people that he presents his sacrifice that's a powerful reminder isn't of. it that you know that, that the actual in the uh, under the old covenant it was you know for the the, the, the animal was sacrificed for the people yeah. and the people of god and and this is how that christ is crucified for his people and and the whole of scripture just keeps this theme running throughout i think it, this is where uh we we need to study throughout the whole of scripture and as you mentioned hebrews i i find uh i remember when i was a younger christian i found hebrews really hard work to read to start with but nowadays you the, the more you read hebrews the more the the rich layers of of the theology the rich layers of of what christ has done it, it's i mean it's one of my favorite books in the whole of the bible hebrews and i'm so, so glad you mentioned it because you know without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins no and this is where we're at without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and it's the blood of christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness that's it it's the blood of christ and the blood of christ alone which is why you know i think 1 john 2 i think this is another text that is, is just so key you know um propitiation uh, this idea of a you know a, a sacrifice on behalf of, and again gareth we talked about this before um this is something we're going to talk about at Noah the Gospel Conference in a few weeks' time. The importance of preaching Christ as a sacrifice for sins. You know, yeah. uh, the importance of uh, penal substitutionary atonement, if you want to call it that. Yeah. But like when that leaves the pulpit, so does the gospel. 
you know um, yeah exactly <laughs> it's as simple as that and and thankfully thankfully we have our a unity on that with many of our armenian brothers um but yeah so one john two uh, one and two my little children i'm writing these things to you that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous you see that advocate there um that's yeah. the same word uh, that is used for the holy spirit in john 14 15 and 16 the paracletos um and he's talking about jesus here he's a paraclete um with the father jesus christ the righteous the righteous one he is the propitiation or helasmos is the greek word there for our sins not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world and so often you know i heard armenian brothers go well well there you have it you know christ is has paid for the sins of the whole world um you know you you can't argue with it there you have it it's it's there and actually um when you look at uh you know when you look at the kind of like uh, the lexicons as launida helasmos actually denotes a means of forgiveness um in some cases and not propitiation itself and i actually read this i have no issue with it because he is the means of forgiveness for our sins and he is also the means of forgiveness for the sins of the whole world there is only one offering there is only one sacrifice that can expiate sins for the whole world and that's christ there's there's no other way that can be given um so i find that not to be a problem verse personally i know that there are different ways of reading that but uh that would be my view yeah absolutely right and i think i mean we could we could certainly go into um more verses but as we're sort of coming towards a close but i just mentioned one other um in 1 timothy 2 verse 4 and it kind of says um that that who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth well you know god does desire all people well, to be saved i will say but ultimately yeah that's an interesting one because i think if we go back a verse as well the context yeah. becomes clear um you know for example it's often so well he desires all to be saved well there you have it but actually yeah when you when you read back further um oh i mean one thessalonians what not one timothy <laughs> one timothy two uh verse one it says first of all it's actually talking about prayer first yeah. first of all i urge all that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people all right so that's the first mention of all people okay now does is paul sorry is timothy is paul writing to timothy here and saying to the church at ephesus guys i want you to pray for every single person that ever has lived and every single person that will ever live no that's nonsense he's not saying that so all people in the first place isn't meaning all mankind every single person so it no. can't mean that later on okay because of the context so it says prayers thanksgiving be made for all people for kings so that's a type of person for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people again to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth so what's it saying by all people it can't be saying all people every single time in every single place all of the common humanity it's saying the same thing it's saying in first timothy 2 1 which is all kinds of people kings those in authority yeah 
it's so interesting yeah. isn't it that like you can kind of you can kind of pluck a verse and and kind of and it and you think it means one thing but actually it has to always be read either side of that particular verse and we quite Absolutely. often find that with with these proof texts as well don't we yeah and god doesn't desire the death of the wicked does he he's not vindictive but at the same time as we've read in romans 9 there is a difference in the treatment of men and and the way that god yeah. deals with men you know god didn't deal with esau the way he de- dealt with jacob he didn't deal with pharaoh the same way that he deals with israel you know egypt and israel are two different nations they're treated very differently and so god doesn't deal with the elect the same way that he deals with the world at large you know um oh yeah and, and people would say but that's really unfair that's so unfair why why would he love one <laughs> one group of people and not another group why would he love one person rather than another wouldn't you know that's often the thing you'll hear but that's i i, I can't go along with that that's not fair and that's exactly what Paul says, isn't it, in in Romans nine nineteen, you will then say to me, Why does he still find fault? <laughs> exactly. Why yeah. does he still find fault? For who can resist yeah. his will? And then you know what Paul's answer to that? It's not to be compassionate and say, Well, it's you know, it's not quite what we mean and um we you know, we wanna be winsome. He says who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, you know, will what's moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? So the two types of vessels... Uh, there yeah in in god's sovereign decree which he's prepared beforehand for glory so some vessels are prepared for uh sorry some vessels are prepared for destruction according to paul and some are prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he's called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles so there we can see god's sovereign decree again and he's not treating all vessels the same uh you know and and no okay you could say it's not fair but (laughs) fair to who who deserves yeah grace as soon as we begin talking like that we're not talking about grace anymore we're not we're talking about things we deserve doesn't it yeah exactly yeah nobody deserves to be a vessel of honor no one deserves that we all deserve to be vessels of destruction fitted for destruction um but god has mercy on whomever he wills and this is the gospel and this is the good news and uh i think you know it's just it's when we frame these things i think Um, and there's just such a beauty in it when we frame it in the whole revelation of scripture this work of salvation flowing right from the book of genesis through to the book of revelation we see a sovereign god one being in three persons and in that godhead there is a purpose for the salvation of a people from a sinful rebellious world and they work it with perfection that <laughs> there's not going to be yeah. people in hell that god tried his best to save and couldn't do it he's not going to lose one of yeah. all those who christ went to the cross to die for and that's the glory of the cross we can trust it and i think like we, you said before gareth you know whether you're on a minion whether you're whatever i'm saying people have all kinds of denominations for their views on things i've got brothers who are, who are calminians <laughs> but whatever calminians you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like you know on some level 
all of us are limiting the atonement we're either limiting its extent in terms of the way the calvinists see it or we're lim- limiting its effect in an arminian view we're saying yes. well, the cross is for right. all but it doesn't actually win salvation for all it just is there as a means and a way um you know we're all limiting it to some extent either in the extent or in the efficacy and so it's worth saying that and i think i see in scripture the plan of god i see a definite plan i see it well thought out i see that he's a god of order i see that you know the golden chain of redemption there in romans 8 29 that he's foreknown a people he's predestined that people he's called that people he has justified that people and he will glorify that people and not one shall be lost the devil will not pluck one from christ's hand he will have the glory for saving his people no demon will be able to mock god on that day of judgment and say ha ha we got some of those who you paid for with your son's blood nope uh there's there's not going to be uh not a drop of blood was wasted exactly just like the story of narnia when edmund is ransomed from the queen you know uh like aslan pays for him and he receives him there's not going to be one lost that that god intended to save on that day there'll be no cause for gloating amongst the demons before they're thrown uh, into the lake of fire um (laughs) and so there we go you know that's what i see um in scripture uh call it what you want call it definitive atonement call it limited atonement call it particular redemption whatever you want but i see god redeeming for himself his people yeah well there we go (laughs) and uh you know we're going to be back soon with the next episode on irresistible grace Uh, and we hope we hope this discussion has been of of help in some way um and we hope it encourages you at the very least to to go and search scripture for yourself and um you know to be provoked sometimes it, it you know God provokes us, doesn't he? And causes us to bury our heads in scripture and read deeply and pray and seek his word. And so we pray it's done something of that and that this has magnified God in your hearing tonight. So uh, yeah, we we would encourage you as well uh, to get along to our event in a few weeks time. We are doing a conference called No Other Gospel in Wolverhampton and we'll attach a link to the description of this podcast you can sign up there it's uh, on a friday the 3rd of march and saturday the 4th of march we've got a guest speaker dear moodley pastor dear moodley is coming to share with us uh, gareth and i will be speaking we're speaking on what is the gospel what is the content of the gospel what is the good news and what isn't it what are the many false gospels that are manifesting themselves all over the world right now and how do we tell the difference we're going to be talking about that um and we we're really excited for it we're hoping it's going to really build people up in the lord so please do get along to that if you can um otherwise we'll be back with another episode in a week or so yeah gareth did you want to share anything in closing that's great just uh i hope to see some of you at the at the know the gospel conference we're so excited to be doing this aren't we it's wonderful yeah, to be wait. able to you know to, to to get onto the road and yeah we're, we're thrilled to be able to do this yeah. really excited to hear uh what, what you've got to share and, and what uh, dear moodley and it, it yeah and going to be a wonderful time of fellowship worship and and just sitting under the word for a weekend so yeah really excited about that but also looking forward to being back with you again soon when we look at irresistible grace so yeah yeah, hope you've enjoyed listening to this yeah absolutely well 
Yeah, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen. God bless and see you next Amen. time. Take care. God bless. <laughs>